Hey everyone, this is Josh for the Solopreneur Grind podcast, episode 76, and I'm happy to be joined by Dave Barr from InsightfulLiving.com. Dave, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Dave. Really looking forward to it. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself or or a a quick intro on yourself? And then, of course, we'll do a, a deep dive into how you got started and what you're working on right now. Yeah, um, I never have quick intros, and I never know how to say things briefly, so feel free to stop me or or whatever. The not-so-short version is that I was born totally blind. Um, I have a fraternal twin. We were both born three months premature, and um, I grew up in mainstream schools and went to high school and got a a master's in musicology. and met the person who would become my wife and uh, and all that at, at CU Boulder. I'm in Colorado. Hmm. And um, since about 2016, 17, I've really been focused on, on being an entrepreneur and started Insightful Living as um, a business for consulting for usability and accessibility for blind people. and. Uh, also something that I'll talk about later called Stop, Look, and Listen Coaching. Um, that's the very, very, very short version. I wrote a book that's called Prave, P-R-A-V-E, The Adventures of the Blind and the Brittle, um, about my wife Priscilla and myself and the things that we did as a couple. Um, and uh, that was kind of a, a cathartic experience, to say the least. And um, yeah, just sort of been trying to focus on the usability and accessibility of technology um, and also on sort of the, the coaching as well, um, primarily on the, the usability right now. Got it. Very, Dave, that was a good job, man. That was a, that was a pretty crisp intro. I think you don't give yourself enough credit. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah, it's, we're off to a very good start then. So, Dave, let's start. Uh, I mean, I definitely want to hear about your entrepreneurial journey, but can we talk about maybe what kind of happened at what was university like for you? And then kind of how did your career get started after that? Or, or what were some of the steps that kind of led to taking the entrepreneurial leap? Um, as with everything I do in life, it seems to be a multi-pronged, multifaceted approach. I um started in cognitive neuroscience and then moved into music and musicology. Musicology is the cultural study of music as opposed to the performing of it generally. And I basically decided I didn't want to be the person performing Handel's Messiah, beautiful piece that it, that it is. I want to be the nerd that sits in the library and researches stuff. Mm-hmm. So I wanted an excuse to listen to doo-wop records all day. So I made a thesis about it. Hmm. Um, and in 2013, I graduated with a master's. As somebody who's been blind all my life, I've never known things like color and shadows and shades and things like that. Um, but I do use the same vocabulary as sighted people. So I'll say, can I see that? Can I, you know, I watch TV, I, things of that nature. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna like, say goodbye to somebody and be like, well, I'll feel you later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, no, just no. 
So, you know, as far as school was concerned, and I talk about this in the book and stuff too, I, I had to become a self-advocate. I had to ask for what I need um, and want, but also need, you know, if I need something in Braille, I had to ask for it and go get it. And I had AIDS and things of that nature, but mm-hmm. um, they're very dear to me, but uh, you know, it was, I was the only blind person in school in elementary school and middle school and, and high school, the only total, uh, totally blind person. So when I got to college, a lot of people were like, wow, I can schedule my own classes. And I was like, I've been doing that for three years because the school I went to had four buildings mm-hmm. and I couldn't just like up and go to the next class. I had to go get Braille books, which are two to three times the size of print books. And then go sometimes all the way across to the next building. And it just, it's it's really hard to navigate you know i had a cane at the time it's, it's hard to navigate when you know two thousand people are standing in the hallway talking and i just need to get to class right so um i may have veered off course a little bit here all right dave so you're navigating school you're able to get your way through college which is i mean that's an interesting experience for everybody and i could only imagine especially for yourself you graduate in 2013 what was the next move from there well, I have to back up a little bit because I have to introduce the, the other consummate character that, that is in my story at that time, and that was my dear wife, Priscilla. Um, and to give you a little bit about Priscilla, she was in a wheelchair, a power chair. She had what's called osteogenesis imperfecta, which is brittle bones. Um, basically, her bones didn't have any collagen in them, and they would break or crack very, very easily. Um, she was... 34 inches tall. And uh, that was the only thing short about her was her stature. She was very loud, very gregarious. Yeah. Um, and I had met her in 2011. Um, and again, it's something I, I talk about in the book, kind of how we met and, and things like that. We met at the assistive technology lab at the University of Colorado Boulder. So um, we kind of were, were a team. She was my eyes and I was her strength and legs and arms and um, she had a stroke in late 2011 so after that it was kind of her memory and her speech and uh, things of that nature nature it was an aphasic uh, stroke Um, I could go into more detail about that but I had to bring her up because by 2013 she had graduated with a double major in broadcast news and political science and so when I graduated in 2000 13 um we weren't quite sure what we were going to do but we were going to get married and we bought a a condo and um so i started working um at the university of colorado boulder in their accessibility lab and she started working at a non-profit um organization down about 45 minutes south of where we lived as the social media advocate um i totally lost track of your question no, I, I was just wondering what the next step was. So it sounds like you, oh, okay. you continued to, you stayed at Boulder to start working for the university? Yeah, so I did that. Um, but I also, I started um, doing, I started doing the entrepreneurial stuff pretty early, actually, um, because the stat that used to be, and this is pre-pandemic, um, is somewhere around 70 to, depending on where you are, 90%, 70 to 90% of blind people are unemployed in the United States. 
let me say that again, 70 to 90% of blind people are unemployed in the United States. Now, why is that? There's a number of reasons, but I decided I didn't want to be one of those people. So I, after doing a few jobs, went down the self-employment track and said, well, I might as well start my own business um, and started doing coaching. Um, took classes at the Coaches Training Institute, uh, biggest coaching school in the world. They have what's called the co-active model. Um, and then Priscilla and I were, were coaches. We were thinking about doing public speaking. We were talking about writing a book. And so all was going sort of kind of okay. And Priscilla's health kind of took a turn for the worse, to be honest, uh, and went downhill very rapidly from the beginning of 2017 to the end of May. And uh, then she passed away suddenly of a brain aneurysm. Um, it was obviously a shock to right. the system. Um, and about five months later, I lost my mother-in-law to a massive heart attack. And then that next April, I had to put my guide dog, Katie, down, who I'd had for 12 years. So those three losses, the only one I was really kind of expecting was, you know, Katie, because she was going to be 14 and a lab is a lab, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, needless to say, I don't wish those 11 months on anybody. But I had to kind of step back and reevaluate coaching. And it made me, obviously, there was a lot of grief and, and sadness. But I started writing hmm. because Priscilla and I had talked about writing a book. And we didn't, you know, we threw around fun ideas and stuff. And people were like, you, you two should be on a podcast or write a book or whatever. And we were like, yeah, we should. But work and life and health hmm. intervened. And, um, but in August of 17 or so, I started writing. And then when Darlene died, Priscilla's mom, um, I sort of took about, I don't know, four months off just to grieve and get myself together again. And because I was writing the book for her, I started mm -hmm. writing it for her to kind of tell our story because Priscilla grew up in a small town in North Dakota. And there were sort of two Priscillas. There was the North Dakota Priscilla, and then there was the Colorado Priscilla. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I met Priscilla at a kind of a juncture, and then she had a really bad accident and a stroke, and so a lot of stuff changed. Um, and again, I, I talk about it in the, in the book, but I started writing as a catharsis. Mm -hmm. And that has kind of led me the you know I, I put out the book i did a video trailer for the book through a business uh coach who's a dear friend of mine um and a mentor and they helped do the video and then over the past year or so i've done some speaking but have focused kind of on getting myself you know back to some sort of even keel um Right. And one thing, you know, I focused on a couple of things. I did, like I said, I did co courses at the Coaches Training Institute. And then about um, maybe a year or so ago now, I was 
talking with a business coach that I had and I was writing some messaging copy. I was trying to figure out how to market myself as a coach because there's zillions of coaches out there. Mm -hmm. But I thought, why don't people like I was I was trying to think about how to do this. I, I thought, well, I'm a good listener. I always have been. And then I thought to myself, well, wait, when you go up to a street corner, what do you do? You stop at the street corner, you look both ways, and then you cross the street. And you might be listening to the traffic around you or listening to whatever your friend is saying to you. And it occurred to me, I'm like, stop, look, and listen, right? We were all taught mm -hmm. that at a young age, presumably. Mm -hmm. I was. And even when I go to, when I, as a totally blind person, go and go up to a street corner, I instinctively look both ways. <laughs> it doesn't do me a damn bit of good, but I do it anyway. Yeah. And uh, when I cross a street, I have to listen to the traffic patterns to know when the light is uh, green or not. And presumably people are driving correctly. And I, I, you know, it's something I was taught as a young, as a kid. So it's, it's second nature to me. Mm -hmm. And when I had my dog, I would tell her, okay, forward, and we would cross the street. There's a common misconception, and I've been asked this, if, if my guide dog can tell when the light changes. Well, no, she's two feet tall, for one thing. Um, but so I was like, huh, stop, look, and listen. I like that. And so I've sort of stuck with that as kind of a coaching, eh, maybe a mantra right or something to that effect like a this almost is what like we a all... guiding principle type thing yeah yeah exactly yeah. this is all what we need to do in life and then um another thing that i was doing at the university of colorado boulder was um, accessibility and usability so my computer talks to me and my phone talks to me very very fast and that's how i navigate the internet and the mo and mobile apps and so if it's not built properly for a blind person to navigate i can't use it Mm -hmm. And um, I am uh, a very outspoken advocate for that sort of thing um, because it's what I do daily. Mm -hmm. You know, some people are like, don't make your hobby your business. I'm like, I'm making my life my business because if I can't access the website or whatever, or something goes wrong, mm -hmm. then I'm kind of screwed. You know, just as if somebody in a wheelchair can't access whatever it is, because there's no ramp or no curb cuts or whatever, mm -hmm. um, then we're screwed, you know? Got it. Yeah, so, no, there, there's a lot that I want to unpack in there, Dave. Can, yeah, I threw can, a lot at you. Can yeah. you, I mean, it's, it's good because it gives me a lot of information to work off of. But my first question is, what when you decided to go down the entrepreneurial route, what was it that pulled you into coaching specifically, right? Because there's a lot of ways to become an entrepreneur and... and that seemed kind of like a natural path for you, but what what was it that pulled you in that direction or so, pushed? Yeah, it kind of yanked me with a, a large sucking sound into the coaching space. Mm -hmm. um, I started, when Priscilla was alive, I was big into, and still am, into the getting things done methodology by David Allen and um, was talking to one of the coaches from the David Allen company and she and I were I said, how can I become a GTD coach? Because I really like the ideas. I like the lists. I like the, you know, however all that stuff works. And I think there's a lot of and she said, well, have you ever thought about coaching? 
I'm like, well, I mean, I want to be a GTD coach. And she said, no, like, like what they kind of call life coaching. And I'm like, I mean, kind of, sort of, <laughs> I've heard about it. And she said, go look up the Coaches Training Institute. I said, okay. So I looked them up. This is 2015. And uh, I take the fundamentals course. Long story short, I take Priscilla and I take the fundamentals course. And walk in late. We were late to everything. Priscilla was always late. Mm -hmm. And the guy who's teaching the course, Rick Tamlin, one of the most beautiful people in the world, looks and sees a small girl in a very expensive, cool-looking wheelchair, a blind person, and a dog. And they were already teaching the class. We walked in. We said, sorry, we're late. We sat down. We went through the afternoon's class. It was cool. It was, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I thought this is, this is really interesting. The next day, I did what I always do. I tried to start poking holes in the philosophy because I'm a contrarian. <laughs> always have been. And I realized why I was panicking. I was panicking. And when I do that, I get mad and yell and try and, you know, kind of basically was saying this is bullshit. Like, what is this? I don't get it. Why am I, you know, why am I doing this? What is this? The problem was, was twofold. One, I'm a contrarian. And two, they had a flip chart of the coactive model and I couldn't see the chart. And they tried to describe it to me and I didn't understand the visual. I was not understanding it. And Priscilla, God bless her, knew the look on my face and knew what I was doing. And Rick said, all right, Look, we're going to break for lunch. I want to help you, Dave, in front of everybody. He's like, I want to help you. Let's break for lunch. Talk about it. Can you come back a little bit early and we'll talk? I said, okay. And Priscilla and I sat at lunch and we reframed the chart so that I understood um, what it looked like in a different way. Because Priscilla know, knew how my, my mind worked and how I visualized things came back, talked to Rick. The rest of the weekend went fantastically. We ended up taking the other four courses and starting certification. We didn't get a chance to finish it because we didn't have the money, but that's another story. But I got into coaching and I realized that coaching, as, as the Coaches Training Institute, now I believe they're the Coactive Training Institute. So apologies to his CTI people if I've got that wrong. Um, when they started, they they said, well, and this was in the late 80s, early 90s, they were like, you know, we have consulting on one extreme and therapy on the other. We want something in the middle. Like, mm -hmm. how can we combine these two? Because they're not bad. Neither of those things are bad. Mm -hmm. And so that, well, what do we call it? Well, let's, I guess we'll just call it coaching. And it became, you know, now this billion dollar industry and as I do not like the term life coach. I think that it's a very misconstrued term, but you know, as Rick Tamlin said, it, we were on this, you know, a life coach was on the Simpsons. When you're on the Simpsons, you know you've, you've either made it really big or you flopped one or the other. <laughs> yeah. um, so I started doing coaching and so did Priscilla. And she's like, how am I gonna do this with the stroke? I said, just think about what words you wanna say. And if it doesn't come out right, it doesn't come out right. Mm -hmm. So I started doing coaching and realized that I was good because I listen 
And in the CTI courses, they do a little bit on tone of voice, but not a lot. Um, but when you have a coaching session over the phone or Zoom or whatever, people are focused on the visual if you're on Zoom. Mm -hmm. But when you're on the phone, tone of voice is, is so important. And I, I got to thinking, and Priscilla and I talked about this, and then after she died, I sort of dove more deeply into it with stop, look, and listen. But I was like, as a coach, it is important to hear what your client is saying, but hearing is different than listening. Because when I listen, when I hear somebody talk, I may hear the words they're saying. When I listen to somebody talk, I'm listening to what the cadence of their voice is. What pitch do they land on when they talk? Um, what rhythm does their voice have? So I'm a musicologist. I'm a musician. I think I, you know, I'm going to use the word here in this case. I think I hear, I see things in music. Mm -hmm. I listen to people's voices like music. Um, you know, I do a lot of vocal impressions and mimicry. There's a speech that I gave on jazz singers and baseball broadcasters hmm. um, that I did last year in Boulder. And it was so much fun because I got to do impressions of my favorite baseball radio broadcasters. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and there were no slides for the presentation because it was all, you know, it was all oral, it was all audio. Mm -hmm. So you know, one of the things that I try and focus on when I listen to people talk is what their voice sounds like and how, you know, where is the music? Where is the rhythm? Where is the, is there more skepticism in a word than their face might let on? Now, I have the advantage in this case of not ever having seen anyone's face. No, blind people do not feel people's faces. <laughs> Big stereotype, not not really the case because everybody has zits. I know that everybody has a nose unless they you know got it chopped off. I don't want to feel your zits. Zit braille, just not my thing. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's it, it's it's a super interesting point, Dave. Probably something that people have gotten worse at as times have gone by, and and people are more focused on their phones and and not actually stopping and, and listening like you're saying I'm actually in the middle of reading reading Dune right now I, I don't know if you've read the book before but what's really been interesting to me so far is they go a little bit more in depth into the power of really list like truly listening exactly as you're describing it and, and you know putting together almost like pieces of a puzzle the way people are using their right. tonalities and uh, you know how they're reacting to certain phrases and, and what they're saying and things like that to a whole other level that we're, we're just you know not really most of us are not aware of uh, these days so what do you recommend for how do you recommend people become better listeners I think the, the, the thing that somebody can do if they are sighted and this is me speaking from a blind person's perspective so you know um stop and look first and then listen because you're not gonna focus just like let's use the example again of the the street crossing if you are at a busy street you're going to stop 
you are going to notice that cars are passing in front of you and you will notice that the right light is red. You're not going to cross because you can see that there are cars passing in front of you, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you're crazy, I guess. Um, but eventually you're going to look, oh, the light's green. Those cars aren't going to be in front of you, presumably, and you're going to cross the street. What you've done there is you've made the unconscious into conscious, right? Oh, I'm not going to get hit by those cars. Okay, those cars are gone. I can cross the street. What you're doing, too, is you're listening, whether you're necessarily, you know, your mind's on it or not. You're listening to car horns and sirens and trucks and things. Mm -hmm. So really, I think the two keys, two key pieces are to stop and look and then listen. And kind of what I said on my site, too, is focus on the internal and the external voices. What's going on in your head and what's going on around you? Mm -hmm. um, there are three According to the Coaches Training Institute, there are three levels of listening. The first is what's in your head. The second is what your client is thinking. And the third is the global level of what's the energy in, you know, in the space, whether it's on the phone or in person. What's the, you know, and for me, that energy, I would say, is kind of like, what's the music? What's the score sound like? What, what, what background instruments are we listening to? So when I did my thesis, one of the things that I focused on was how the mix was set up in the studio, where I thought right. this, so was, I did vocal group harmony. So where, the, where were the musicians positioned around the microphone? Uh, if there were two microphones, you know, where was the piano? Where were the drums? Because I wanted to get at, in the thesis, I wanted to get at how one label, record label differed from another. And by the same right. token, how does another person in their speaking differ from another? We all have a, a pitch that we land on when we talk um, because of our vocal range. Uh, and so I kind of got off track there, but I, you know, I think it's, it's yeah. important to do the stopping. It, it makes so much sense. I think it's probably more important than ever that people kind of heed that advice, that people pay more attention, not just to the audio that, that's coming out of people's mouths, but the, the visuals, the energy uh, between two people conversing, kind of the, the environment, as you said. So it makes a ton of sense to me. And, and so Dave, I'm definitely interested to hear more about the book, right? You, you said you went through a really tough 11 or so months and writing was one way to help you through that. Were you just kind of writing at the beginning almost as, as like a form of a diary? I'm, I'm curious to know kind of, you know, what made you start and then how did it eventually evolve into writing a book? I mean, just like becoming coaches, writing books have also become very popular, especially now that it's so much easier to self-publish. And so for those as well who might be interested in writing their own, I'd love to hear more about uh, number one, kind of what was the inspiration that took you to the book? And then number two, any recommendations you might have for people who might be thinking of writing one? Um, so the inspiration was losing Priscilla because, you know, I lost my soulmate. I lost my angel. I lost mm -hmm. the person that every day, multiple times a day, I would, you know, we would say I would do anything for you. And it's true. You know, we woke up, said I love you, went to sleep, 
said, I love you. We had a very, and you know, people have said, oh, it's, you have a very rare thing. Yes, we did. So losing her was sort of the, the moment that I just, I needed to write. And I signed up with a self-publishing guru and I didn't care for the, the company. But in order to get out of the contract, they said, we want 10 pages of manuscript. And mm -hmm. I said, fine. So I started writing one night about Priscilla's death and what happened. And I sent it to them and said, if you don't cry when you read this, you have no soul. And the next day, they sent me a message returning my money. Hmm. And I was talking to another coach that I had who knew Priscilla. And she said, have you heard of this company that does publishing? She said, you know, you should write a book. Because she knew Priscilla and I were talk had talked about writing a book. She said, well, you should write a book. You're a good writer. Priscilla always loved my writing. I was always kind of the wordsmith for her after her stroke, especially because she'd say, this doesn't sound right in my head because she had aphasia. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, well, let's read it. And usually the things that were wrong with whatever she was writing were things that anybody, stroke or no stroke, would, would fix. They were small mm -hmm. things. So I wrote about the hard stuff first. I wrote about her death. I wrote about the funeral. And seeing, talking to these people that were publishing consultants, they said, well, you pay us a fee. We vet the editors. We vet the cover designers. We vet the, you know, we do the Library of Congress stuff. It was everything that I didn't know jack shit about. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't fucking know how to do this. And I don't want to know how to do this. We'll pay us and we'll help you. Okay. So I did. And I started writing. And I had a logo for my publishing press and was going to go see Priscilla's family in North Dakota. And then on October 30th, Darlene died of a heart attack. And I had to just stop writing for a bit. Mm -hmm. But when I picked it up again, February of 18 or so, um, I just, I knew that these stories needed to be told. Now, I wrote a memoir and had lots of stories that didn't make it into the memoir. So, you know, you asked if it was kind of a diary. Yeah, in a way, it was, it was a diary, but I also, you know, there were stories that Priscilla and I would tell to people um, to emphasize certain points. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized as I was writing and talking to my publishing consultant and writing coach um, is that we needed to make a cohesive whole out of the book instead of just stories. Mm -hmm. And, she, you know, she said, well, what what all these have in common is advocacy. And it was one of those moments of like, duh, because that's what Priscilla yeah. and I did. We were self-advocates. We had to be. We were advocates for each other. We had to be. Um, so when we started sort of compiling and, you know, putting things in chronological order and editing and stuff, we had to weave the narrative of self-advocacy and disability advocacy through uh, the ends of the chapters and stuff like that. So it, it became, you know, it, it went from the, I just need to write 
to looking up and saying, okay, Priscilla, okay, Darlene, here's the story that I'm going to tell to, hey, you're writing a book. Yes, I am. To here's the cover of the book. What does everybody think? Wow, that's really great to okay, I've done three or four edits with different editors. The manuscript is ready to April of 2019. I'm holding the printed book in my hand hmm. and I'm getting, I have a braille copy of it. Holy shit. And a lot of people were like, you did this so soon after Priscilla's death. And I said, yes, I did because it's what she would have wanted me to do. And, you know, I tried to include humor and I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of books on disability out there that are, you know, inspirational. I do not like the word inspiration. Mm -hmm. It kind of rubs me the wrong way. Um, that's a whole other lecture, but I wanted a book that would inspire. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be somebody's inspiration, but I, I'd love to inspire somebody. There's a big difference. You had asked about, you know, what people can do if they want to start to write a book. Mm -hmm. And I think as dumb as it sounds, start writing. Mm -hmm. Now I am a horrible journaler. I don't like to journal. I have so many ideas and thoughts in my head. I'm horrible at writing them down. One of the things that David Allen always says, who wrote the Getting Things Done book, is a, a comment that I've always liked. I don't always subscribe to it, accidentally, of course, but uh, he has always said, your head is for having ideas, not holding them. Hmm. I like I'm going to say it one more time because it's fascinating to me. Your head is for having ideas, not holding them. Hmm. So one of the first things they teach in the getting things done book is to capture things. And now, of course, it's easier than ever with notes, you know, Evernote, which I don't like for accessibility reasons, and other things to write anything you've got in your mind down. So for me, when I started writing, I was writing a true story. Mm -hmm. It's different if you're trying to make a world uh, you know, your own fictionalized world. Of course, I took liberties with dialogue, but everything that I put in that book happened. Mm -hmm. You know, I would, I and I would like to back up and say that I didn't take exceedingly massive, you know, rewriting of whole speeches of dialogue. But for anybody that's a writer, you know that you kind of have to make things blend and, and make them fit together. So, mm -hmm. but all of the stories that I wrote happened right. all of the anger all of the sadness all of the joy all of the beauty all of the pain all of the pleasure it all happened and so you know i tried to be vivid and keep the thing moving along um for the for the book my publishing consultant said write a book that somebody can read maybe on the flight from Denver to New York. Mm -hmm. Well, that flight is about three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. so that's about how long my book is. Right. 
but I'm thinking now of doing an audio book. And uh, right. a lot of people have been like, where's the audio version? Like right. as if I just need to like, you know, pull it out of my ass and it'll show up. Right. Not quite that soon. I think that's the other thing too that people don't realize is your first draft is going to suck. Mm-hmm. I've heard. I've heard from yeah, many people. Yeah, the first draft is going to be shit, okay? Mm-hmm. But it's there. You can mold it, right? I mean, you don't have a piece of clay that all, all of a sudden becomes this beautiful terracotta pot, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have just Van Gogh just didn't throw, you know, unless you're Jackson Pollock throwing something at a, at a painting. Mm-hmm. Van Gogh didn't just like, oh, I'm going to just throw a flower up there. You know, mm-hmm. we all know that. Writing is an art. Speaking is an art. Interviewing is an art. Lecturing is an art. There's a lot more art out there than people realize. Mm-hmm. It, um, it makes sense, right? It's like anything else. The The more you do it, the more you polish it, the uh, the better it'll get. So, you know, people should not expect to, their first draft to be uh, to be the most brilliant writing that they've, they've ever done. So, Dave, what would you say writing and, and publishing the book has done for you? And then take us to where we are today. How, how would... How has the publishing helped, uh, if at all, with with the coaching and, and the consulting that you're doing today? And uh, you know, what are your what are you most focused on now? You asked me like four different questions. Which <laughs> I, I focus on first. I tend to do that, not intentionally. Uh, let's start with uh, so where kind of where publishing the book. What did that really do for you, and, and how has it led to where you are right now? Publishing the book allowed me to have a platform, if you will. I think that word can be overused, but it it allowed Mm -hmm. me to have this thing. It -hmm. allowed me to have this tangible object of this is Dave Barr who wrote this story. It's a good story. You should read it. Mm -hmm. You know, it allowed me to say, I am Dave Barr. I am a coach, consultant, self-advocate you know, usability expert, screen reader user, um, you know, I am this, I am that. Mm -hmm. So it allowed me to kind of have that voice and it's, it's opened up doors for networking. It's opened up doors for, um, different speaking engagements. It's opened up doors for doing more coaching. I didn't have, the idea of stop, look, and listen when I wrote the book, but that's okay because Mm -hmm. it sort of, it propelled me from one thing to another to another. My publishing consultant recommended the person who became my most influential um, business coach after I had done one big video business coach program. That particular person introduced me to another person who introduced me to another person. And, you know, it's become sort of this community. But I think the main thing that publishing allowed me to do, and I self-published, the main thing that it allowed me to do was just say, I did it, here's my book. And I think it's one of those things where if you don't have a physical copy of the book, it's not gonna mean nearly as much to you. Yeah, yes, you can self-publish. Yeah, it it seems like, Maybe it, it doesn't seem so clear, but going from, you know, writing from a word in a word document to physical copy of a book in your hand, that's big, right? That's big for many of the reasons that you said. So I totally get it. One day I'd love to get there. Probably, 
not not any time in the near future, but in in the mid future, I'd, I'd I'd love to to write one eventually. So, Dave, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. What what's the big focus now? And through the consulting and the coaching that you're doing now, could you give us maybe two to three pieces of advice that you often find yourself giving to other people or or businesses that you're working with? Sure. Um, so, what I'm doing now seems to change from moment to moment as it always does for everybody Mm -hmm. um the the things that i'm focused on now are in the accessibility and usability of technology space which i like i had alluded to earlier it's what i know because it's what i do every day so is your website accessible to somebody such as myself who uses a screen reader is your mobile app accessible um another area that i'm focusing on too is the stop look and listen coaching um since the pandemic has come up a lot of people have realized that they're looking at websites a lot more than they used to mm-hmm. um and they're having virtual meetings and i've kind of come on some of those and said can you describe what you're showing on your screen because some of us can't see it um so i'm doing that um i did a zoom call a little while ago on sex and disability hmm. um and in, in that space too, and sex positivity and things like that. Um, what else am I doing? I'm, I'm trying to write more, oddly enough. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to put more out on my blog. Um, right now it's sort of be trying to find clients for the accessibility and usability um, because people don't know what they don't know. Right, right. Which kind of leads me into your other question of like two or three things that people, first of all, don't be afraid, which of course is so much easier said than done, Mm -hmm. but be open to new things, ask questions, because if you don't ask a question, you'll never find out what you may already have known, or maybe you don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I can put this a couple different ways and I'm going to, 20% 20% of people that use technology have a disability. Hmm. What that means to you as a business owner is that if your website or your app is more accessible and usable, you get 20% more of your market share. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a good number. That's a significant yeah, number. I'm going to put it a different way, though. And in the, in the U.S., one in five people has some sort of disability. One in five. Mm-hmm. Now, it might not be a visible disability such as myself or, or Priscilla, blindness and, and brittle bones. You might have a cognitive disability, but it's a, a disability. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, what I know is, is uh, screen readers. What I know is Braille. Um, I can't speak to deaf culture or uh, gender neutral culture or cognitive disabilities aside from my wife who had a traumatic brain injury. So I think, you know, the what I know is what I know and what I don't know is what I don't know. And I think people, again, going back to stop, look and listen, like, stop and think about what you do or don't know look around you to see if it's even important and then listen 
to where you want to go with it in your business, in your life, whatever. Right. Um, yeah, and that's that's pretty broadly applicable to to almost anything. Right. Uh, Dave, sure. I, I I do have one one last question because we're getting to the top of the hour here, but I, I do want to ask, what's one thing that you wish more people knew in terms of in in terms of making your life more accessible right like especially when you're going through college when you're going through high school you you mentioned you you know likely the only blind person what's one thing that you wish other people knew of that uh or one thing people could do that would make things that much easier for you for everybody right to just kind of make the whole environment a better place know that people with disabilities are humans just as anybody with a skin color is a human different skin mm-hmm. color anybody with a different sexual orientation or anything like that is a human too often people with disabilities are a minority and a statistic mm-hmm. and i think something i think that gets commonly assumed is that somebody with a disability can't do whatever like everything in life mm-hmm. and in that respect they are correct right i can't look at a painting in the visual art museum but somebody can describe it to me right mm-hmm. um so i have ways kind of, of of adapting i think and i think i said something to this effect on my site or in my book of like trust that if the person with the disability has the capability to do whatever it is they're doing if they need help that they will let you know i I, I come across a lot of people where i'll be walking down the sidewalk or whatever with a dog or a cane and they'll just be like can i help you i'm like i'm no i'm fine thank you (laughs) some people will just go okay and they'll go on their way some people will go are you sure (laughs) and sometimes i'm a little hesitant because maybe i do need help right we all do this Mm-hmm. You know, but if I say no, I'm okay. Don't ask a third time. I have a mm-hmm. rule of three. If somebody asks me a third time, then it's like, okay, clearly you're self-reflecting and deflecting that something is is bugging you. You know. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just kind of a question of being cognizant of of your surroundings. I think I don't know if that right. answered your question at all. Yeah. No. No. Abs- absolutely. Uh, and similar to our talk earlier on on listening, I think it's more important now than ever to just be more aware in general, right? Whether it be listening, keeping your eyes open, being respective towards other people, et cetera, et cetera. So I totally get it, Dave. Uh, this has been really great, really good to hear more of your story, where you're coming from, your insights. If people are interested in learning more about you, following you, uh, do you mind maybe plugging the book one last time, website, any social medias you, you'd like people to check you out at? Sure. So the book is called Prave, P as in Paul, R-A-V-E, which is Priscilla and Dave and Proud and Brave. I, I like that. It is Prave, mm-hmm. The Adventures of the Blind and the Brittle. It is available on Amazon. Um and I run a company called Insightful Living. Excuse me. I run a company called Insightful Living, which is in-sightfulliving.com. 
And you can find me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash IN slash Dave Barr. And that's, that's the business side of things. Um, I'm on Facebook, but LinkedIn and, and email are probably the best. Awesome. Um, and I'll, I'll link to all those, the website, the book, the LinkedIn yeah. uh, profile in the description. Dave, thanks very much for coming on the show. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey everyone, Josh here checking in just one last time to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. I also wanted to say if you want even more of this business insight and motivation right to your inbox Monday through Friday, make sure to sign up for the Solopreneur Grind email list. What I did was I started a list to give solopreneurs a super quick email every Monday through Friday into your inbox. That's all it is, one quick quote to motivate you and help you get through the day because I know how tiring and long and difficult and stressful some of those solopreneur grinds can be. So if you're interested, sign up at the link in the description or solopreneurgrind.com and I hope to have you on the list. Thanks again. Take care.